0: Hello everyone, thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman and I am privileged to serve as the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. If you're joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, I wanna welcome you. And if you are a returning viewer, let me welcome you back. With Joe Biden and Kamala Harris set to take office tomorrow, just uh, 22 hours from now, they'll be sworn in on the steps of the Capitol. Israel Policy Forum remains as committed as ever to our mission and our vision. For those who are new to us, Israel Policy Forum works to educate policymakers, Jewish community leaders, and leaders of the next generation to be informed and effective in their support of U.S. efforts to advance a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict consistent with Israel's security. To all of our supporters on today's call, thank you. For those who have not yet done so, I encourage you to make a contribution in support of Israel Policy Forum's work. In this transitional moment, our regular Tuesday video briefings continue to be a source of credible, nuanced analysis, not just for today's listeners and supporters, but also for the policymakers in Washington and for community leaders across the political, denominational, and generational spectrums. Individuals who downloaded these briefings more than 30,000 times last year. When you make a gift, you'll help support not just these Tuesday webinars, but also the weekly Kaplo column, Israel Policy Pod, community programming, policy briefings for the Biden administration, and the 117th Congress, and development of the next generation of leaders and policymakers. Please visit. IsraelPolicyForum.org forward slash giving and make your gift today. Thank you. Now, on to today's program. As mentioned, we're on the cusp of the Biden presidency. So it's worth taking a look back on the outgoing Trump administration's impact on the state of affairs in the Middle East while evaluating the priorities of the incoming Biden administration. To help us reflect on this moment of transition, We are truly fortunate to be joined by by Aaron David Miller. Aaron is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and and a former State Department Middle East analyst and peace negotiator for both Republican and Democratic administrations for nearly a quarter of a century at the State Department. He is a CNN global affairs analyst and the author most recently of The End of Greatness, Why America Can't Have and Doesn't Want, another great president. And Aaron and I have been friends for a very long time. So it's really a pleasure to have you on, Aaron. Thank you again so much for joining us. Um, So to kick things off, could you please help to set the stage for our audience? Broadly speaking, what is President Trump's policy legacy in the Middle East? And what will President-elect Biden be inheriting?
1: Thanks, Susie. First of all, it's an honor and privilege to be here. You're right, we've been friends for decades and neighbors. And I, I must say, I've been a supporter The Israeli policy form since its inception. Um, I've seen it under various iterations, through good times and bad. Uh, And the fact that it's so relevant and so resonant under your leadership means that its message really does resonate. And even in difficult times, it's important to continue to articulate. But I must say, Susie, nobody that I know has done this job with more clarity and integrity and honesty than you have. And since clarity and honesty are two elements missing in the human enterprise, uh, I value them greatly. Um, I just wanted you to know that it, you're you. fabulous and so is this organization. Thank I, you. I, I wanna talk for just two or three minutes to try to frame the issue as I see it. These are complicated issues, these are my views I think they're tethered to a measure of experience over the years. Um, we can, you can accept some of it. We can argue about some of it. You can discard the rest. But I think it's 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 a dialogue worth having. I voted for Republicans and Democrats and uh, worked for Republicans and Democrats. And it was always one of my guiding principles that when it came to U.S. foreign and domestic policy, the dividing line, for the United States should not be between left and right, liberal or conservative or Republican or Democrat. It should be between dumb on one hand and smart on the other. And the only thing that mattered, frankly, to me is which side of the line do you want America to be on? The dumb side or the smart side? Um, The smart side, I would argue, always required, particularly when it came to foreign policy, judgment, wisdom, prudence, knowing when to act, and when not to, correlating the means and ends and finding a realistic and realizable definition of what constitutes something that I deeply believe in, that there is something called the American national interest. And finally, finding the right balance between the way the world is and the way you want it to be, whether it's diplomacy, marriage, business uh It is that balance, I would argue, where success to the degree it can be achieved in all these fields is to be found. For Donald Trump, in my judgment, looking back, it was evident even then, the foreign policy and national security policy of his his administration was tethered not to the national interest or any sort of systematic effort to define what that even meant. But largely, not exclusively, but largely to a series of of personal political interests, vanities and egos. And in fairness, on some issues, the Trump administration got a few things right. There was a pretty serious risk aversion to nation building, which reflected not only the view of most political elites, but the country. There was a cautious and judicious use of military force. No new wars were entered. And the administration, however dysfunctional the process, took a few more steps in getting America out of old and unwinnable wars. On issues like North Korea, I think Trump reframed the issue. He more or less decided it was time to stop talking about North Korea and to start talking to North Korea, but he failed to build on that effort in any serious way and to create a realistic pathway to try to diffuse the nuclear issue uh, and create stability and security on the Korean peninsula. And likewise on China, I think he called attention to Chinese transgressions. They used the term peer competitor, but even that was subordinated to his ego, his vanity and politics, especially after COVID. And of course, um, the wholesale withdrawal from every organization from Paris Climate to the WHO, embracing dictators, dissing allies, all of these things, I would argue marked by and large a dysfunctional foreign policy. In the Middle East, and this is why I began with the broader view, his policies were were a reflection of the same basic factors. They were tethered to ego, to politics, primarily to courting evangelicals and to becoming what he sincerely wanted to be, which was the un-Obama. In the case of Saudi Arabia, I've watched administrations, Republican and and Democrats placate and acquiesce to the Saudis, but never have I seen an administration so willing to give a ruthless and reckless crown prince the kind of latitude and margin. But it shouldn't surprise any of us. Trump followed the money, he followed the glitter, and he followed the applause. It is still a stunning fact to me that the president's first foreign trip abroad where most of his predecessors consider going to Canada, Mexico, or Great Britain, ended up going to Saudi Arabia uh, and Israel. And speaking of Israel, I think it was clear um, that Trump administration bestowed most of the honey on Israel, a series of gifts, some substantive, some symbolic, um, and saved most of the vinegar for the Palestinians. Uh, the maximum pressure campaign on Iran was effective, certainly in helping to destroy the Iranian economy, but it was seemingly unattached from any end state, leaving leaving Iran free and able to move closer to developing enough fissile material to produce a, to produce a weapon, including enriching Iranian um, uranium and also uh, activating their advanced centrifuges. He deserves credit for sure in um, following a policy set by Obama, but putting it essentially, ramping it up uh, in a campaign to defeat the Islamic State and the Caliphate and the Abraham Accords. Um, it is true that the Trump administration jumped on a bus that had already left the station. Uh, those accords had been preceded by at least a decade of discrete contacts between Israel and the Gulf States. But I must say, and I met with Mr. Kushner, he was kind enough to see me on several occasions, but frankly wasn't much interested in what I had to say, but he made clear in a meeting I had with him in 2017 that they were much more interested, my words here, but his thoughts in the 22-state solution rather than the two-state solution. And They devoted enormous energy to this, um, both in terms of cultivating personal relationships with Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed, and again, giving the Saudis tremendous room uh, to maneuver. Um, I think it's important before we move on to, to Biden to keep in mind that Trump inherited a sort of broken, angry, dysfunctional region. I would argue there's probably not a single problem out there that had a comprehensive or, or tractable solution. So it's not as if the Trump administration uh, missed enormous numbers of opportunities. My view of the Middle East is uh, a very sober one. Uh, America is stuck in a region it can't transform. That should be evident from the last 15 years on one hand, and it can't extricate itself. So if there's no transformation and there's no extrication, what is left for a great power to do? Well, it is a a version of transaction, but not Trump style. And that's going to be uh, Joe Biden's challenge as well. But Trump's real legacy for Biden is much bigger than the Middle East or in any foreign policy issue. And that is the wreckage that he's left behind and the one that will constrain, contain, and affect Joe Biden the most. If you believe Doris Goodwin Goodwin and Ken Burns, Biden now confronts not only the greatest challenge since Franklin Roosevelt, but perhaps the greatest challenge of any president since Abraham Lincoln and Ken Burns will now argue uh, a World War II kind of challenge. We are a nation that is sicker, poorer, more divided, and frankly, more delusional than at any point in time that I I certainly remember. And and as a non-practicing historian, I, I, I think that a, a lot of this is true. I tried to convince a millennial the other day that 1968, this was not the other day, it was a year ago before COVID, that 1968 was a worse year than 2019, a worse year. Tens of thousands of Americans were being killed in Vietnam. You had the King assassination in which 13 people in this city were killed, a thousand were wounded, a hundred cities across America had riots you had Bobby Kennedy's assassination and you had Chicago and yet then you had the election of Richard Nixon, but there was no sale. I could not persuade. There was no perspective, no sale because the sense of urgency and foreboding for, for this particular millennial was so intense that uh, these were the crisis times. And according to, to, to him, we we had never been through worse. worse. But Biden is gonna confront four intersecting challenges, the greatest threat to public health since the great influenza of 1918, an economy that has serious structural impediments and that has revealed serious uh, inequities and divisions, deepening divisions along racial class and political lines and political dysfunction that goes way beyond a simple disagreement over policy. I don't know if you read Timothy Snyder's piece yesterday in the New York Times Magazine, Uh, you should, because he argues that post-truth essentially ushers in uh, pre-fascism or fascism itself. Once truth can no longer be embraced and embodied by the majority of citizens in a republic, it is open to mythology. And it is open to the wealthy, the corrupt, the venal, beginning to cultivate their version of the truth. Now, we've seen this in other societies, but I'm stunned to the degree that it has now taken hold here. And what we have essentially is a galactic divide over the very essence of people's perception and conception of what reality is. And not just among people affected by social media, people who are aggrieved and alienated and disenfranchised and unhappy. The best explanation I actually have ever heard about why many people, not all, support Donald Trump is what one Palestinian said to me in the 80s when I asked him why he supported Yasser Arafat. Arafat, he says, is a stone that I throw at the Israelis every day. And that, to, to a degree, explains explains a lot. But it's created a situation where you have what Rand uh, called truth decay. And I don't know how you do self-government when the political elites that are serving in the US Congress embrace the same mythologies and validate them uh, that millions of their constituents do. I realize the political reasons they do it, but it's it's created a, a, a a terrible situation. I guess I'm making these these points because there is no single foreign policy problem out there, or combination of foreign policy problems that create a greater threat to this republic than the problems that we face here at home. And I would argue that Joe Biden, the future of the Democratic Party in this case, And the future of the Republic rests not on what Biden will be able to do. You've been in this city, Susie, as long as I. We live inside the beltway and we know that foreign policy is an inside the beltway issue. Um, And I think that that is gonna create to some degree limited bandwidth and limited resonance as to the importance of foreign policy in judging the Biden administration where it really will come. Now, you can do a lot of things in 100 days. You could go on an exercise program. You could learn how to program your VCR. There's a lot of things you could do. But we have to get rid of this iconic notion that somehow within 100 days, Joe Biden is going to fix America. There's a lot he can do. And I, I want to maintain a real sense of optimism and confidence that he will. But the real struggle for the soul of America, as he puts it, is here, not at home. At the same time, he's created a foreign policy team that is probably the most experienced, the most passionate, the most energetic that I've seen in decades. And anyone who says to me, well, they're all Obama appointees, I don't think understands that, in fact, when a president shackled with this kind of Domestic agenda wants to do foreign policy, he's going to appoint people he knows, people he trusts, people who understand how government works, so that in essence they can begin to function almost immediately. Now, will this come at the expense of creative out, the, out of the box thinking? I don't know. You have arguably, and I gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal yesterday, you have arguably seven, six secretaries of state, if you count Tony Blinken. You have six humans appointed by Joe Biden that could have been the secretary of state. Now, it's not a team of rivals, but it is a team of people who have passion, experience, and very strong views on foreign policy. And we're gonna see how it's going to work. So Biden's priorities abroad, I think it's first low-hanging fruit. You do what you can do symbolically and effectively quickly. You rejoin Paris climate. You repurpose your relations, re-energize your relations with the allies. You, You rejoin the WHO. You create a rhetorical frame of reference which injects human rights and values, which this administration has more or less emptied out of that frame of American foreign policy. The fruit that is higher up the tree, how to deal with Russia, China, what to do about North Korea is um, gonna be much more difficult, not because they lack the talent, but because of the structural impediments and challenges. Final point, when it comes to the Middle East, it will largely be, in my judgment, an Iran story, because Iran is the only issue, and we can argue about this, in the entire region which could disrupt, distract, and undermine Biden's domestic priorities, in large part because it's the only issue that could trigger regional war between Israel and Iran, and the only conceivable issue that I see that could actually draw the United States in to a significant and or major conflict with Iran, which could then set into motion all kinds of financial and economic problems that would affect Europe, Uh, And even while we're freeing ourselves from Arab hydrocarbons, the rest of the world has not, is not. Uh, On Israel-Palestine, I think you know my views. There's a lot Biden can do in several different areas. We can talk about that. But I think for the foreseeable future, just to conclude, we're going to be operating in a space sandwiched between a two-state solution that, in my judgment, still I don't care what anybody says, is too important to abandon on one hand, but on the other, simply too difficult and too fraught with obstacles to implement on the other. Now, how you manage that space and whether it could change, that's what we don't know.
0: Well, I'd like to drill down on some of the points that you articulated, Aaron. Um, Starting with this, given the range of issues the Biden team will have to confront, and I think you laid them out pretty clearly, from the Iran nuclear program and possibly re-entering the JCPOA to the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia, how do you think the new administration will prioritize or not prioritize the Israeli-Palestinian conflict?
1: I mean, I, I think like the low-hanging fruit that um, can be picked on broader foreign policy issues, I think there's there is a lot that they can do uh, on the Israeli-Palestinian side. Some of it it is uh, reflected in the CNAS report, which I think is a pretty good baseline. I, I could I could quibble or push back on some of the issues. Um, but I think in a situation where the honey vinegar balance is so out of whack, where um, the Israelis have been treated and given gifts of symbolic and substantive importance and the Palestinians, despite their dysfunction and whatever challenges, difficulties they may have, have been fundamentally undermined and all of this has affected American credibility as a, forget honest broker, as an effective broker in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There's a lot that, that Biden can do and you know what they are. You know the steps that he could possibly take. The easy steps, restoring a measure of um, independence to an Israeli-Palestinian dialogue, opening the consulate or opening representation of the Palestinian Authority in Jerusalem may may prove tougher, Um, creating a rhetorical frame of reference, which makes it unmistakably clear where the Biden administration, what is the least bad solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Which is a variation of separation through negotiations into two states. All of that is relatively easy. Uh, Some of the assistance questions or opening the PLO mission will require congressional support. It gets harder when you talk about what you're going to do with respect to Israel. And if, in fact, you're not going to move into a period of negotiations over permanent status, which I think would be an an absolute disaster. We've had so many false starts and and bad outcomes that it, w- it would be mindless and profitless and destructive to the process to try to sit an Israeli leader and a Palestinian leader down to talk about border security, refugees, Jerusalem, recognition of Israel as the nation state of the Jews and end of conflict as the six sort of core issues that define the Israeli, uh, a conflict ending solution. Um, So you're going to be talking about bad behaviors. And this is where it's going to get very difficult, very difficult. And the Biden administration has a choice to make on this. They can do what the Obama administration did, which is define a set of goals and objectives and red lines, all of which were crossed without consequence. Uh, Or they can do what is very difficult, And that is to have a a tough and honest discussion with whoever the prime minister is or whatever uh, caretaker government exists heading toward a fifth election, if that is the results of what happens on March 23rd, to have what we have rarely had with the Israelis, which is an honest discussion about reciprocity in a relationship. I don't, I've never understood this and I understand the politics and there were I, I resurrected the phrase Israel's lawyer from Kissinger's memoirs for Jim Baker. It was not my phrase, and yet I am now forever tarred with using it. But Baker loved it. I'm not going to be Israel's lawyer. Don't 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 you put me in that position to be Israel's lawyer. But the reality is um we need to restore a measure of credibility. If in fact it has nothing to do necessarily with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, just for our own purposes. And I I think no American official should ever have to appear before a Jewish audience ever with any sort of embarrassment or defensiveness that the government of this country has not done for the state of Israel, an extraordinary amount of things. Um, And I, I, I've never really understood our reticence. It flows obviously from domestic political realities, but a willful skillful, willful, skillful president can make these points if in fact it's tethered to a strategy that actually produces something that benefits Americans, Israelis, Palestinians, uh, and, and the Arabs. So I, I don't think this will be a, uh, a major priority, but I do believe the music is going to change the words are going to change. And frankly, the fact that um, you have this team and this president um, and not the uh, and not the previous president and the previous team will make a difference. We don't know on a day-to-day, I was talking to Lindsay about this. We have no idea what the impact on a day-to-day basis over the course of one year will be on not having a president interrupt our 24-7 frame during the course of the day with some behavior, some action uh, that uh, is upsetting and or dysfunctional. The impact of that over time, and I apply it directly to foreign policy problems, may in fact help restore a measure of functionality and normalcy into this relationship. I, I certainly hope so. Aaron
0: how would you recommend the Biden administration address moves currently being contemplated by the Israeli government such as legislation that would provide for the legalization of hitherto illegal West Bank outposts and other steps that threaten the future viability of a two-state outcome
1: Well again this is the this is the issue of having a conversation with the Israelis I don't know whether this administration is prepared to have that conversation the last time There wasn't an administration that was prepared to have a conversation like that, was Bush 41 and James Baker. The world was different then. They were different. There were real opportunities. Madrid is not Camp David, but the fact is that um, uh, the administration applied vinegar at times when it was actually necessary in service of a strategy tethered to an objective that in the end would prove to be beneficial, not just to the Israelis, but the Arab states and the Palestinians. That's the problem with fighting with with Israel without a strategy, because no American president is going to take on the Israelis unless there is an outcome that can be pointed to. And opposing settlement activity on ethical and moral grounds may be correct, but it's not tethered to the realities that a president particularly one like Joe Biden is going to is going to confront but they'll have to make their decision all i would i would plead for them to them if you're going to come out with a set of tough minded talking points with respect to what you will accept with respect to israeli behaviors on the ground Please do it only if you are prepared uh, in a, a functional and measured way to make good on those red lines. And I I won't answer that question for the Biden administration. I think there needs to be more reciprocity, frankly, injected into the U.S.-Israeli relationship. Um, I'm not entirely persuaded, given Biden's other priorities, that. Um, that he'll do so.
0: Turning to the Gulf, President-elect Biden has been critical of Saudi Arabia, its human rights record, its war in Yemen, and the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. Does the original 1945 bargain between Franklin Roosevelt and King Abdul Aziz Ibn Saud U.S. protection from outside threats, in return for reliable oil supplies at reasonable prices, still stand, or is it now outdated? Particularly given our lessening reliance on fossil fuels,
1: it's broken down, uh, and that isn't a function of the Trump administration. Although, as, as I mentioned, there's a degree of acquiescence and obeisance that Trump has um, has a lot has has practiced that uh, is essentially. We have allowed a lot of reckless and ruthless monarch to understand, uh, to undermine both American interests and values. I'm not call you know, like Lehman Brothers, maybe the US-Saudi relationship, really is too big to fail. I'm not arguing for gutting that relationship. I would argue for, for accountability and conditionality, however. Um, Saudi Arabia is not an ally of the United States. I, I think we need to stop using this word as it pertains to any number of countries in the region. An ally is a country with whom the United States shares common interests, and no two countries' interests coincide across the board, but there's a, let's put it this way, a high degree of coincidence of interests, a high degree of coincidence of values, and a domestic base of support, which makes the relationship between the United States and X sustainable. I'm I'm looking at Saudi Arabia. I don't see a coincidence of values, despite uh, some of the reforms of Mohammed bin Salman. I don't see. I see an episodic coincidence of interest between the United States and Saudi Arabia. We're no longer dependent on Arab hydrocarbons, and although oil trades in a single market, which means that a disruption in 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 a source X is going to lead to a consequence in Europe, and then a blowback here. Um, the oil for security trade-off has broken down. We don't need their oil on one hand. They don't trust us anymore on, with respect to our security. Uh, and that that was uh, a policy, I think, or a perception on the part of the Saudis that began in the wake of the second Gulf War, where for the first time in a 1,000 years or so, you had a Shia regime ruling in Baghdad. In large part, uh, as a consequence of... Uh, um an invasion of Iraq which wasn't carefully thought through so I would impose a certain measure of conditionality on the Saudis certainly with respect to Yemen and uh and on human rights we have a lot of leverage there we've just been unwilling and unable to um to use it
0: um a couple more questions or I'll combine some because we have a lot of audience questions how could the relationship between the Biden administration and Saudi Arabia impact U.S. reentry into the Iran deal? And how will the U.S.-Israel relationship affect the Biden administration's approach with regard to the JCPOA?
1: I mean, the, the latter point, Susie, is the I think is the is the one that it, it seems to resonate more than any Um you know, I, I have a, I have a very mixed feeling about this. I've I've had two Israeli prime ministers of very different temperaments, Yitzhak uh, Rabin and, and Netanyahu basically say the same thing to me, almost in exact same words. Don't preach to us to our, don't preach to us about our security. We're living on top of a volcano and you know you live in Chevy Chase, Maryland. And as a consequence, I don't trivialize Israeli security needs and requirements. Israelis have a genuine problem with Iran. And while the issue of ballistic missile technology and Iran's regional behavior are problematic, when you look at the existential threats that confront Israel, it is the nuclear issue, I would argue, that is the real problem. And um, that is a, a, a genuine problem unless you can somehow eliminate the acquisitive power or the acquisitive character of the regime in Tehran, that is say, eliminate their need to acquire enough fissile material to produce a weapon and then to weaponize it, this is gonna continue to be a problem as long as the regime in Tehran functions as if it were driven by a profound sense of entitlement on one hand and a profound sense of insecurity on the other. That problem is not going away. It's a legitimate problem from the perspective of a a small state and states in the region. I include the Saudis and the Emiratis there as well. So Israeli needs, requirements, sensibilities on the Iran issue have to be taken into account and into consideration. But at the same time, I would argue, they cannot be allowed to dictate or fundamentally transform arrangements designed, however imperfect those arrangements may be, designed to deal with the reality of the Iranians being a screwdriver's turn away from producing enough fissile material to to make a weapon. So the question is, how do you balance that? How do you find the right balance that would satisfy American interests and Israeli needs and requirements? Obviously the 2015 JCPOA didn't do that. Can you find another uh, pathway to a negotiation that would satisfy both Benjamin Netanyahu and the Israeli security establishment? I don't know the answer to that question. The JCPOA was designed to preempt a war between Israel and Iran and to make an American Iranian war unnecessary. It was never envisioned as a, trans- as a transformative arrangement. It was always transactional. I think the Obama administration may have said too much publicly about their hopes that it would Somehow The JCPOA would somehow transform Iran, make it open to the world, change the nature of its, of its views of the world, <clears throat> when in fact, after concluding the JCPOA, the Supreme Leader, uh, his major objective was to demonstrate that Iran was not domesticated, that the agreement would not change Iran, would not open up Iran to the world. And that, it seems to me, is the dilemma that we're going to continue to face. I don't see much hope, frankly, for anything more at this stage than if the Iranians are even prepared to agree to a re-entry, compliance for compliance, into the agreement. And there are a lot of people who think that is not the way to go, But I don't see the alternative because I don't think before re-entering, you're gonna be able even to add the other issues that um, seem to be urgent for the Israelis, ballistic missile technology, Iran's role in the region, uh, sunset clauses that are extended out much longer than the ones that are currently uh, in the agreement. So uh, again, I think this is gonna be increasingly fraught. Uh, time is a wasting. The Iranian uh, presidential elections are in June. There may be a limited amount of time between now and then to conclude something. Uh, I'm not for rushing. Um, but I fear the consequences of no agreement as we, as, we, um, as the timeline extends beyond June.
0: Aaron, as you might expect, we have a number of audience questions about the JCPOA and what the Biden administration will do. So I'm just going to throw out one from Charles Berman, who says Biden and his foreign policy team have indicated a desire to return to the JCPOA. Given the developments and changes in the Middle East since the inception of the deal in 2015, particularly those involving deeper Iranian involvement in Yemen, Syria, Lebanon and Iraq. Will the Biden team seek to include a new version of the deal, um, seek to include in a new version of the deal constraints on Iranian efforts to achieve hegemony in the Middle East?
1: Yeah, um, I, here's what I would say. Um, I think Biden has been pretty explicit in what he wants to do, and that is re enter the accord, compliance for compliance, with a commitment, mutual commitment, uh, to negotiate and to address other issues. Iran's regional role being one of those issues. Um, I think to some degree, uh, getting the Iranians to tamp down their activities in the region is in many respects a fanciful undertaking. Um, I don't believe Iran is capable of achieving hegemony in the region. Uh, I think the power of demography and geography in places like uh, Syria and Iraq, and even Lebanon, give Iran inherent, an advantage, inherent advantages to maintain a certain degree of influence in the region. I think between the Russians and the Israelis in Syria, uh, they have served to a large extent to constrain Iranian behavior. Uh, and I, and again, I feel very strongly about this. Israel. And I've never looked at the Israelis in any other way. Israel is not some sort of, is not a piece of driftwood sort of floating on a turbulent sea. I mean, it's an extraordinary country with remarkable agency. And what I mean by agency is not just the power to produce an extraordinary society, uh, in art, in music in science in philosophy in startups but to project its power in the region in a way that it is actually more successful as a local regional power than we could ever be in constraining Iran's regional role and i don't i've never I've never really understood, the and, and the Israelis, for obvious reasons, whether they're exaggerating the threat of Iran or whether or not they're simply using, using it as a talking point to make a point, the Israelis are quite successful uh, in these endeavors. They've avoided or preempted uh, what would be, I think, a war they want to avoid with Hezbollah since 2006. They've been pretty open, uh, given their traditional discretion in identifying the numbers of attacks they have launched in Syria and even in Iraq. And I think they have, and the Russians, Putin has helped to a certain extent um, in this endeavor. So I, I, I think if, again, I'll return to first principle. It is not ballistic missile technology and i do not think it is iran's regional role and i know there are people who fundamentally disagree that are the uh, that create you know what king called the fierce urgency of now it's the nuclear issue and it's the nuclear issue that needs to be addressed i see zero possibility of getting iran to give up its influence and its desire to expand that influence in in Shia communities in the region uh, or to give up its ballistic... They may be prepared to accept constraints on their ballistic missile program, but if they did that and they agreed to sunset clauses for another 30 years and they abandoned their role in the region, you wouldn't have the same country. It would be a different country. And I don't see how with this regime... <clears throat> repressive, authoritarian, serial human rights abusers, executing more people every year than China, any other country than China. I don't see how you you fundamentally alter the character of that regime without changing it. And I think those efforts, frankly, um, uh, have in the, well, in the early 50s, it was a different story, but they've proven it, we're not very good at this anymore. And frankly, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure it's it's worth it's worth trying. If the regime changes, it will change as a consequence of internal contradictions, which will ultimately produce something else. But we're a, as the Brits would say, a long way from Tipperary on that one.
0: So just to follow up with this uh line of 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 your thinking, are you saying that unless there's regime change in Iran? You don't see that the likelihood of re-entering the JCPOA and even more uh, coming to getting the Iranians to agree to terms that would be considered more favorable, like extending the sunset, dealing with the ballistic missile issue. You're saying you don't really think that's likely
1: to happen with the current leadership in Iran. I think it's highly unlikely. And I, I, because I thought the other day, what did it? What is it that we would have to give? in essence, if we wanted the terms of the JCPO changed or added on? What would we have to give the Iranians to get them to uh, pull back, um, constrain Revolutionary Guard activity in in Yemen, uh, in Lebanon, in Syria and Iraq? What would it cost us? I mean, nothing in negotiation is for free. You know, negotiations like good marriages survive because they're based on a balance of interests. Each party gets what it needs, uh, or even if the relationship continues, frankly, it's not terribly healthy or worthwhile. And with Iran, it's just, it's just, it, they will not concede what it, under this regime, in my judgment. And by the way, it's moving from a regime dominated by clerics to a regime dominated by a military establishment and a a Revolutionary Guard Corps. What that's going to mean for further negotiations with the United States, I don't know. But I don't have an answer. That's the problem. And I recognize the inadequacies and and the flaws and the imperfections in the current JCPOA.
0: And I'm just thinking about the divisions in the Jewish community in the summer of 2015 over the JCPOA and, and going down that road again is not a prospect that I think any of us on this call would look forward to. Um, let me switch to the Gulf. Uh, Eli Nirenberg, what are the prospects for Joe Biden giving incentives to Arab states to normalize with Israel? So Trump got the UAE F-35s and Sudan economic aid. And of course, we know with Morocco, there's this recognition of the Western Sahara, which flies in the face of decades of U.S. policy. Uh, is Biden willing to do something similar for Oman, Indonesia, or other potential targets for normalization? And something we've talked about on many of these calls, the potential for an arms race in
1: the Middle East. Look, I don't think the Biden ministra- the Biden administration is going to inherit two peace processes. One is fundamentally flawed and right now dysfunctional. That's the relationship between Israelis and Palestinians. The second peace process, based on the Abraham Accords, um, is functional. It represents a, a fundamental change in the priority of Arab regimes, maybe not publics, but the regimes themselves, It's a fear of Iran, rising Iran, and transnational Sunni jihadis. It's tremendous frustration with the Palestinian issue. And it's a desire to position themselves in Washington and to see what they can extract from an administration. Sadat made it unmistakably clear that the road to Washington lies through Jerusalem. Hussein and King Hussein, in an effort to regain his influence here uh, in the wake of the impression that he was supporting Saddam Hussein, basically made the same calculation. And these Bahrain, the Emirates, Sudan and Morocco also understand or understood during the Trump administration that the road to Washington influence and what I call off the table benefits F-35s off the terrorism list for the Sudanese, F-35s to Emiratis and recognition of Moroccan sovereignty over the Western Sahara were things that could be extracted from an administration who wanted to encourage the Abraham Accords. Um, So I think the Biden administration will need to do more than simply play at encouraging the process of Israeli uh, Arab state uh, reconciliation. It's real, it's extraordinary. I know there are people who believe it is it is a terrible thing um, because it validates the prime minister's notion of peace for peace. But since it's so hard to get anything done in the Middle East, I, I think that the Trump administration, even though their transactional approach to this issue, uh, in many respects was not responsible, particularly with the issue of recognizing Western Sahara, um, sovereignty of the Western Sahara. Um, The Biden administration is going to have to, again, try to encourage this process. Do I believe that they will pay for Arab, uh, Arab state Israeli normalization? in the way the Trump administration did? Uh, no, I don't, particularly if it violates American policy. And uh, the Biden administration is gonna, ha- is gonna have decisions to make. When asked, after Secretary of State Blinken's confirmation, when asked, do you recognize America's uh, recognition of Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights? What does Mr. Blinken say? Do you recognize your predecessors' uh, recognition of uh, uh, you believe in a UN process. You believe in a referendum. Do you believe that uh, Western Sahara is now under Moroccan sovereignty? Well, Mr. Blinken will have three choices: he can oppose it, he could validate it, or he could punt. But these are these are things that the administration is going to have to have to confront. I don't think, however. That they will, particularly if it violates long-standing US policy on critical issues. For example, what will it take to get the Saudis to normalize with Israel or to take the next step to normalize? You know what MBS wants. I mean, forget, he's already gotten designating the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization, which he desperately wanted and which the administration decided to give him. He wants ultimately. Um, a get-out-of-jail-free card on the issue of repression at home and Jamal Khashoggi's death. Now, Avril Haynes has just agreed, apparently, I saw it on the wire several hours ago, to turn over to Congress an unclassified CIA, Intel, excuse me, I think it's an, um, it's a uh, in, intelligence community assessment and classified version of what they know about MBS's role in the murder and dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi, so I think that um, the administration is going to be very reluctant, particularly when it comes to Saudi Arabia, um, to engage in that in that sort of trade. One last point: I, I I think I also think that normalization with Israel on the part of the Saudis is such a huge step. And it is such a fundamental, represents such a fundamental change in the region. I mean, I would encourage it, but I think it's tied up with the succession because I don't think the Saudis are prepared to go ahead with this immediately without their being paid in return. And likely it would they would demand something in in the coin of, a, uh, of an Israeli-Palestinian something to make it easier for them to move forward.
0: We've just got about five minutes, so I'm gonna turn to one more audience question and then I have a brief question for you, Aaron. Elaine Cohen um, asks, Mahmoud Abbas has recently announced his intention to hold elections for the PA. What might the Biden administration do to make sure that this will happen and that a new Palestinian leader will have a chance to emerge?
1: Yeah, uh, first of all, I'm not sure uh, I think Mahmoud Abbas's mother is still alive. So I think that um, uh, the the president of the Palestinian Authority probably believes that he's still at a sort of mid, mid-career mid point in the trajectory of his political life. I don't think we're talking about new leadership, um, at least for the presidency right now. I, I haven't unpacked in my own mind why Abbas made this He's made similar declarations in the past, particularly in 2011. Um, I'm not sure by May that's realistic. Um, and I don't ask me the question on new Palestinian leadership because I think it's a huge, it's a huge unknown. Uh, it's hard to imagine a single Palestinian succeeding uh, Abbas if he was incapacitated or, or passed. Um, you'd end up with some sort of, at least initially, collegial leadership. Um, so I, I think I'm not sure whether or not this was an effort to demonstrate unity, which is always extremely popular on the Palestinian street, elections, which suggest uh, an untethering from the, the you know, the sclerotic uh, corrupt FATA leadership, uh, or whether this is an effort to demonstrate to the Biden administration that that somehow there's a new spirit of foot in Palestine. I, I I just don't understand what the motive what the motive is here. Susie, before we conclude, I, you have something you need to say. I want to just read something. Um, I used it this morning in a panel I moderated on the Biden inheritance. What domestic and foreign policy challenges me, uh, uh, he'll confront in 2021. This is a quote, and I mean this in serious, seriously, And I'm, 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 I'm going to read this for a reason. You'll see what it is. in 19 in 1838, Lincoln gave Brett Stevens referred to this today in a column in the Times, but didn't use the quote. The quote is everything. Lincoln addressed the young man's Lyceum in 1838 in uh, Springfield at the age of 28. Here's what he said. At what point shall we expect the approach of danger? By what means shall we fortify against it? Shall we expect some transatlantic military giant to step the ocean and crush us at a blow? Never. All the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined, with all the treasure of the earth, our own accepted, in their military chest, with a Bonaparte for a commander could not by force take a drink from the Ohio or make a track on the Blue Ridge in a trial of a thousand years? At what point then is the approach of danger to be expected? I answer, if it ever reach us, it must spring up amongst us. It cannot come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, We must ourselves be its author and its finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide.
0: That's pretty profound. Um, I think we should end on that. Um, That's all the time we have today. But Aaron, we're definitely going to need to have you back because we had a lot of questions and I had a lot of questions we didn't get to. Um, So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Really appreciate it. Uh, Once again, I want to thank our supporters who are with us on today's call. Your generosity makes programs like this one possible. So again, if you've not yet done so, please consider making a contribution today at IsraelPolicyForum.org forward slash giving. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Once more, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod. Sign up to receive the weekly Kaplo column in your email inbox and visit our website to access recordings of our previous briefings. Stay tuned uh, for an announcement regarding our next video briefing, which will take place next Tuesday, January 26th at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Um, Our next briefing will feature David Haltfinger, who is just ending his tenure as the head of the New York Times Jerusalem Bureau. Uh, So remember, if it's Tuesday, it's an IPF webinar. And again, thank you everyone for joining us um, and happy inauguration. Thanks all.